difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Scott Tobias, Genevieve Kosky, and Tasha Robinson. Every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week we'll look at the beginning and the likely end of a franchise featuring weird aliens, cool gadgets, sharp suits, and a surprisingly laid-back attitude about the presence of aliens on Earth. Tasha, can you tell us about this week's pairing? Uh, I was planning on it, but it says in the script, Tasha speaks an unintelligible alien language that includes syllables never heard before on Earth and is occasionally interrupted by the sounds of a wet gill opening and closing. I I don't know if I can do that. Oh, right. Well, I just figured Genevieve and Dan could lay that over in post-production, right? It would sound really cool, and my extremely funny intro kind of depends on it. Okay, Genevieve's giving me a look that says, we don't have the resources or budget for that, so... Maybe just take a more straightforward approach. And I had just worked myself up to the point of making wet gill noises, but fine, whatever. Our story begins either in the 1950s, when humanity first made contact with beings from another planet, or the early 90s, when a small publisher released a comic book called The Men in Black, which eventually caught the attention of Steven Spielberg, who was looking to produce more movies and always had a soft spot for stories about extraterrestrials. After bouncing from director to director and star to star, it landed in the hands of Barry Sonnenfeld, who was enjoying a kind of hot streak thanks to the Addams Family films and Get Shorty. And it landed as its stars, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. And perhaps just as importantly, it recruited special effects great Rick Baker to design its fantastical creatures. Despite being a movie starring characters with the ability to make those around them forget what they'd seen, it made a deep impression on moviegoers in the summer of 1997. It also inspired three sequels, including the new Men in Black International, which is currently not making a deep impression in the summer of 2019. We'll talk about that in next week's companion episode. Tasha, that was informative, but I can't help but think it would have sounded a lot cooler in an alien language. Whatever. Maybe in the sequel. Uh, If this episode goes well, we should be back with a much bigger budget next year, right? I think that's how it works, yeah. We work for a highly funded yet unofficial government agency. We'll take it from here. Who the hell are you? INS Division 6. There is no Division 6. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. You're all here because you're the best of the best, and we're looking for one of you. From now on, you will have no identifying marks of any kind. You are no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Series 4 de-atomizer. That's what I'm talking about. Noisy cricket. I feel like I'm gonna break this damn thing. Oh, it gets better. Dad, we have a bug. Unlimited technology from the whole universe, and we cruise around in a Ford POS. Fasten your seatbelt. See, now we got to work on your people skills. Every once in a while, a star enters a stretch in which they can seemingly do no wrong. In the mid-90s, Will Smith became such a star, the sort of actor who could create interest in a movie just by appearing in it, even a tough-to-sell project like Men in Black. Smith had previously held blockbusters whose concepts kind of sold themselves. He played a mix-his-own-rules cop in Bad Boys opposite Martin Lawrence and a fighter pilot in the alien invasion movie Independence Day opposite, well, a bunch of aliens. And that film was helped by its star power, but also by this trailer in which the flying saucer blows up the White House that basically anyone who saw it couldn't stop talking about it. But Men in Black was a little trickier. It's also an alien invasion movie but only sort of. It draws on UFO lore about mysterious agents, and that sort of lore attracted new interest thanks to the X-Files in the 90s, but the concept still wasn't a well-known idea. What the public did know was Smith and co-star Tommy Lee Jones, who was then enjoying a surge in popularity of his own thanks to The Fugitive. And the marketing for Sonnenfeld's film sold it as an unlikely buddy comedy based around two different variations on the same style of movie star cool. Part of what makes Men in Black so remarkable is it delivered exactly what the marketing promised. Jones and Smith practically float through a droll, understated science fiction comedy in which they do a lot by doing so little. Both deliver performances that grow more understated the crazier the story around them becomes. Alien baby deliveries, talking pugs, potential end of the world. It's just another day at the office for these guys. 
The film succeeds by underachieving and leans heavily on its fun premise that aliens live among us and have for a long time. And hey, that's mostly fine. We just need a little law and order to keep everyone in line, but not too much law and order because that wouldn't be cool. And who wants to work that hard anyway? Written by Bill and Ted's excellent adventure co-writer Ed Solomon, though the script apparently changed quite a bit in Sonnenfeld's hands, it also uses aliens to offer up its own vision of America. Sometimes it's sly about it. Smith's Agent J brings both diversity and the perspective of a younger generation to the men in black, and his team up with Jones's Agent K plays like the story of a torch being passed. Sometimes it's not subtle at all. The opening scene finds Agent K and his soon-to-retire partner dismissing some overzealous, none-too-bright border agents who've stopped a truck filled with would-be immigrants. The message seems to be that we live in a nation big enough for all sorts and all points of view, so long as we remember not to get in each other's way. And when we do, that's when you need people like Agents J and K, people who can step in, take care of business, then step out again. Men in Black is a weird sort of blockbuster, one that pairs Rick Baker's out-there alien designs with a bizarre Vincent D'Onofrio performance, but mostly it glides on ride jokes and running gags that don't call too much attention to it themselves, like Agent K incessantly needling Agent J with nicknames like Slick and Ace. And in a 90s summer landscape typically filled with heroes who win by blowing up as much as possible, as loudly as possible, Men in Black stood out with protagonists who tried not to break a sweat whenever possible, and happily slipped back into the shadows after getting the job done. They're professionals who follow a code of ethics and adhere to a set of ideals. And when the job is over, they prefer you forget they were ever there. Wanga! Wanga! <laughs> How you doing, fellas? Oh, shit! Hey, hey, hey! That's not decaf, is it? Viennese cinnamon. Oh, don't tell me we only got that powder stuff of cream again. I hate that stuff. No, the Greek has a twaka. Oh, oh it's Chris oh, Good. Right. Yeah. You guys get along all right? No, it was. Don't work too hard. So, you guys seen that? Sure, you don't want some coffee? <laughs> all right. So, what is everyone's relationship with your, this film? I feel like we're kind of cycling through a bunch of, wow, we've seen this movie a lot on cable movies. Is, is, is this one for everyone else? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I have really strong memories of seeing this one in the theater. Like, this was, a, as you kind of mentioned in the keynote, part of a string of 90s blockbusters and the heyday of Will Smith. And I, I saw all those movies in the theater. And I, I remember liking Men in Black. I may have even seen it multiple times, but I was also extremely mm, grossed out yeah. by all the bug stuff <laughs> and was again this time, but was able to uh, kind of appreciate the artistry behind it a bit more than, you know, when I was 15 or whatever, when this movie came out. So like, I liked it, but it also wasn't a movie I particularly gravitated toward on, on a rewatch because I did find it pretty, pretty gross. <laughs> But that's, you know, just kind of my personal hang up with it. But I, I really enjoyed coming back to it this time. It's a, a movie that my fiance loves a lot and has seen so many times. So it was kind of special to watch it with him. Tasha, how, how about you? Uh, I'm not sure that I did watch this movie a billion times. Uh, I, I remember seeing the theater and really enjoying it. And I've probably seen it one or two times since then. Uh, but it's been a, a, quite a long time. And I was really surprised on a bunch of different levels how well it holds up. Uh, in terms of the special effects in particular, a lot of special effects from the time do not look good these mm -hmm. days. Uh, but this movie looks pretty seamless to me. The characters, the aliens, like they, they all just kind of like blend in. And it doesn't have a feeling of being kind of out of time in terms of its pacing. And we'll, we'll talk more, I think, generally about its pacing. But uh, this movie just holds up so surprisingly well. And some of that's the charisma. Some of that's a really tight script. Some of it is just the pacing. Uh, it's mm -hmm. kind of amazing like how well it fits into today's blockbuster pacing um, without exceeding it or overdoing it or, or aping it. It's a quick moving movie that doesn't feel rushed. Yeah, I'd say it, it outdoes it even. I mean, I, our friend uh, Rachel Handler at, at, at Vulture and our former Dissolve co-worker did an interview that talked to Sonnenfeld and Vincent D'Onofrio about his performance. But Sonnenfeld uh, kind of kind of talked about a bunch of things and he talked about how he just like, you know, his secret was just to cut stuff that wasn't funny, you know, just <laughs> and like he talked about how there's a funny movie in Bad Boys too if you cut out like an hour, <laughs> you uh. know. But yeah, that's we're kind of moving on, I guess, a little bit. But yeah, the, the the way it moves is is it is really tight, and there's not anything wasted in a film that I feel like is 
kind of creates the illusion of being a slack film, kind of an unhurried hangout movie, even though it is, they're, they're, it is a pretty well put together piece of, of, of filmmaking in that sense. Honestly, I, I kind of set everyone up to say they watched this movie a lot on cable because I just kind of imagined that was the case. I hadn't. That's not really my experience. I may have seen it once since it was in the theaters, but um, I thought Men in Black 2 was such a poor sequel that I kind of didn't really feel the need to, to revisit this one that much. I still haven't seen Men in Black 3, which it's I hear. Good. Yeah, I hear it's it good. comes back. It's, yeah. uh, I'll, I'll, it's, it's I'll solid. Ch- I'll check it out. I'll check it out. I, 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 I really? had to buy it. Yeah. Uh, I, I found a really cheap deal on like the, all three movies, the first three movies on Blu-ray. So I, I now own Men in Black 3, so why not watch <laughs> it at some point? No, you should. It really is a kind of a bounce back from the second one. But um, to echo what everyone else... Well, first of all, I mean, I saw this when it came in theaters and enjoyed it. It has been very sticky uh, in the culture. I mean, it has been something mm-hmm. that has turned up a lot on cable. And it's one of those things, if you are watching TV and flipping by it, I mean, why not? watch it i mean it's utterly watchable and entertaining and there's not really a part of it where you're where you feel like checking out it's just it's it's constantly on the move i mean this is a movie that is 98 minutes long but the action ends at 90 minutes like the rest of it is just credits and you just don't you never see that anymore and and the kind of filmmaking values that it takes to produce a film like that I miss so much i found Mm -hmm. you know that because because you know we'll talk about it when we talk about the new one but you know, modern blockbusters are so bloated and so concerned with world building, mythology, and, and, and franchise extension that when you just see this movie, which does at least seem to be a standalone thing and not something that's necessarily thinking you know multiple sequels down the line, it just makes such a huge difference in, in uh, to be just you know catapulted through the story and the speed that you are just it, it, you know there really isn't an ounce of fat on it and uh, you know I think that's a real reflection of Sonnenfeld. Two, who who was who started as a cinematographer for the early Coen Brothers films, and um, and I think probably has their sense of just what a good script is and how to how to manage a production in the tightest possible way. Although apparently it was a fairly actually a fairly chaotic production in many ways. Oh yeah, uh, Sonnenfeld uh, is is if you ever see him in interviews, he's, he's sort of. Uh, nakedly neurotic <laughs> and 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 you know it's, it's just part of his his uh, personality but uh, there's a lot of you know, he's, he second guesses himself a lot and uh, apparently there was a little bit of that on, on this so that doesn't show you know it, it, it all works out yeah I do want to sidebar just a little bit on why why don't we get these tight 90 minute movies anymore like even comedies like comedies used to be pretty reliably like if you go over 80 minutes you're probably boring your audience and movies these days in theaters it seems like the expectation is that you you want to nudge just under the two hour mark and weirdly like netflix releases are almost consistently at the 90 minute mark uh, or you know they're the standard netflix film seems to fall mm-hmm. pretty squarely around around that i think films. it's a thing too where like now it doesn't feel like enough movie i mean people are paying so much to see mm-hmm. f- films yeah. that they want a large experience and then something that is going to be, you know, a, a tight 90 minutes is not necessarily what a modern blockbuster is all about. And, um, I think, I, I wonder it's, though, I, I think, I wonder if you put out like a movie like this, that is tight and, you know, nothing, you know, no, no bad scenes, nothing, nothing that doesn't work and get you out of the theater. I, people might appreciate it. You know, it might actually be fine. I think with comedy, I think I, it's not to sidetrack yeah. too much, but I think, I think Apatow kind of like, Showed that comedies, you know, broke the rules by, by making long comedies, mm-hmm. and people who are less, I mean, not like his movies are, are without fat, but people that are less skilled than him at, at uh, making comedies uh, have kind of followed his example to the to the form's detriment. But it does feel like his movies have gotten longer and longer yeah. as they've become more and more geared towards like I'm going to round up every funny person I mm-hmm. know and give them a chance to riff. And there's less of that if it's not funny up to this level, and we keep moving the bar up depending on how funny the funniest stuff is, we're going to cut it. It's like you can't do that because then you're cutting like four of your friends out of the movie. Mm-hmm. And what if isn't funny people like two and a half yeah. hours long, or I, does it just feel that way? To build off sort of the Apatow point, it's funny, Scott and Keith, you said basically the exact <laughs> two answers I had for this sidebar question, which is the the value proposition, people want more movie for their money, and also the sort of way comedy has shifted post-Apatow. And I think it film comedy now is feels a lot more riff-based, and like bits just go on longer. There's more like uh, the style of comedy we're in now, it seems to be very like reaction dependent or maybe like drawing a joke out a little longer than feels comfortable and you get a laugh out of that. And there's definitely, to jump ahead, there's some of that style of comedy 
in Men in Black International. And in the original Men in Black, it's just like the jokes that are there, they're jokes. They're written jokes, they're delivered as jokes, and it's not two people riffing, you know, or like drawing the joke out a little farther. You, well, entirely you, you say the joke and you move on. Riffs. <laughs> Probably not. Well, I mean, I mean he's I think the straight man. I mean, that's no. the thing about this movie is that it really, I mean, it's an expensive movie and it's got these really striking, exciting special effects, but at the core of it are, are very old-fashioned values in terms of comedy filmmaking. You, ha- you have a fish-out-of-water story with Will Smith entering, uh, you know, as just a normal cop introducing this crazy universe to us. And then you also have a mismatched buddy comedy where you, where you have this very sharp contrast between his personality and Tommy Jones' personality. And both of those things create just really nice comic sparks. I mean, it's, it's, sometimes it's just... That simple to have those nice contrasts going to get to, to give you the comic tension that you need, and, and the film just plays off that really well. And you also kind of have the classic comedy duo of uh, the the kind of like sloppy, brash, loud uh, person versus the stiff, uptight, uh, seeming perpetually angry uh, guy. Like that, that's as much of a uh, like a specific comedy trope as as buddy cops mm-hmm. or you know rookie versus veteran. But I also feel like they're kind of I put this in my keynote, but I kind of feel like. Ultimately, you, you see they're kind of the same sort of cool in a way, you know, like Will Smith sort of like the 3.0 version of whatever Tommy D. Jones is in a way, which is like a, a little bit slightly different attitude, but the same kind of kind of detachment and you know, sarcasm in a, uh, that Tommy that Jones has. Um, I don't know. I think part of the film's journey is, is them kind of recognizing how much they're alike. I think Tommy Lee Jones has aged to a point where he's not performative about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like Will Smith is kind of actively booking authority and Tommy mm-hmm. Lee Jones has come to the point where he knows he just doesn't have to care about authority but he doesn't have to make a performance out of it anymore so they're both kind of coming from the same place and Tommy Lee Jones more or less actively says that it doesn't have a problem with uh, Will Smith's problem with authority mm-hmm. with his acting out and you can see that it's because you know he appreciates it it's fine with him but he also doesn't he doesn't fight it. He doesn't give into it. He doesn't fight it. He almost ignores it. And that's just kind of one of the delightful things about it is the bigger Will Smith plays it, the tighter uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays it. And it's just it's a really good dynamic. So that kind of brings up a, a question I wanted to pose or just like get everyone else's read on a specific scene, which is a, a scene that I like a lot in this movie, which is when Kay brings in Will Smith, who is not Jay yet, when he, when he brings him into Men in Black for his sort of test, whatever. Are all the, you know, straight-laced military dudes there, are they actually also being auditioned? I think they're being auditioned because you you do see them having their memories wiped as well. Yeah, I I think that those are all the people that uh, Zed, played by Rip Torn, recruited. And those are the kind of people that they normally recruit. Mm -hmm. And that, like, Tommy Lee Jones knows he's looking for a replacement for himself. He doesn't want a humorless, unimaginative, uh, self-important military man. He wants Mm -hmm. somebody else who can buck authority and make decisions on his own and uh, play it by the the seat of his pants. Like, I think that you get the sense from Zed that Kay actively recruited Jay, like, without asking anybody's permission and without doing any serious vetting, he was just like, I like this guy, I brought him in. And Zed is disapproving of him in part because it's like, these people all have like military experience and we know everything about their background. Like, I think he expects one of them to make it through and he's perpetually annoyed that like Kay is bucking the system. I mean, it does set up a great contrast though between Will Smith and everybody else though that, that, that I'm sure that Tommy Jones obviously wants. You know, he wants somebody to, to be able to say, I'm not going to conform- be a conformist. I'm not going to fall in line like all these other guys. I'm going to do my thing. And it's also another example of the film, you know, getting really solid laughs, you know, uh, you know, with the production design and with and with mm-hmm. Will Smith dragging that table over so he, he can so he can Those get chairs, the test yeah. writ- written up. I mean, <laughs> just it's, it's clever. It's just taking advantage of um, of a scene and getting get the absolute most out of it. One of the things that's seriously clever about that sequence where they're all trying to take the test and dealing with broken pencils and fragile paper and overly aggressive seals and no place to write is that another film would have everybody else in the room incredibly competent at it uh, and Will Smith floundering until he you know does something unconventional the fact that they're all having the exact same problems and that you just know from moment one that this is part of the test and that they're (laughs) all equally struggling with it I think is just a brilliant piece of comedy and just cutting so quickly between all of the different kinds of of problems that they're having and all of the different kinds of lame solutions they're coming up with until Will Smith cuts through it it's Maybe the most extended comedy bit in the film, except possibly for the pug shaking mm-hmm. sequence. 
and it still doesn't last long enough for you to get tired of it. One thing that I will say too about this film is that star power is a big part of it as well. I mean, particularly Will Smith. I mean, there's somebody who you immediately connect to him as a straight up movie star. He's just got so much so much charisma and force and like you you're you're ready to follow him right through the story. You know, you don't need to find some character way to make him interesting to you. You just, you know, this is just somebody who you connect with. I mean, and that's you can't really I mean, I guess you can put a price on that. It's a very, it's a very high price <laughs> in Hollywood. But like, there is that Millions kind of, of dollars. there's that's just that special something that he has, and and this, there's a reason why he was such a dominant, you know, star at that time in a way that we don't have right now, really. Well, and it also strikes me as interesting that this movie came after Bad Boys and Independence Day, which his character in this movie calls back to both of those movies in kind of, you know, very broad ways. But I mean, obviously, there's the alien connection to Independence Day, and there's the sort of buddy cop, you know, set up to to Bad Boys. So his presence in this film has these sort of links to previous successes of his. I can't say whether that was purposeful, you know, by anyone or if audiences made that connection in their head, but it seems strategic, you know, in the in the arc of Will Smith's career and specifically his 90s blockbuster era. I think part of what makes Will Smith so compelling is that he is a very good actor in things like Ali and things where he's a little outside his comfort zone. Well, not in comfort zones, things where he's a little outside, like what comes na- you know, naturally to him. We can see him working a little bit. He's, he's great. But when you just let him be Will Smith, like he is, is here, he's also great. I mean, it's he has that kind of, like Scott said, has like the movie star charisma that you just can't, really work to get you just you just kind of have i think so are you saying he makes this look good kind of yeah (laughs) (laughs) he's got a very infectious smile and really infectious swagger and and one of the reasons that's interesting to me is so much of his latter-day filmography is about uh, like erasing all of that and and playing things as serious and grim and heavy as he can it's like somewhere along the line somebody told him that serious actors don't smile and he's done so many movies that are just like pack on the gravitas until he can't move or breathe here he feels like the fresh prince like he feels just very loose-limbed and willing to be silly and you see him be soulful in this movie you see him be serious you see him be thoughtful you see him be angry but you also see him just kind of fronting in a in a big silly outsized way you see him being uh goofy and incompetent you see him being competent but but completely overtaxed and overstrained it's a really wide variety of the human experience for 90 minutes of a silly science fiction action comedy with regard to his recent performances i'm guessing you have not seen the film aladdin i have seen the film aladdin which is a return to a return of sorts to the silly will smith of old but i i would say there are a couple more things about will smith is that you know on the one hand he does have that kind of transcendent movie star quality to him but he's also that this everyday guy who people can relate to who can bring us into this story and bring us into this world and we can experience his awe and his confusion his laughter i mean all of these things that he's he's seeing for the first time we're seeing for the first time and we connect to him just so easily and it makes everything flow in a way because that's that's what you want from a movie like this because you you know it really has a, a big job to do i mean to to be a 90 minute movie that that is introducing this entire subculture of you know the, the secret agency that is managing aliens who are everywhere on the planet and and are some many are good some are some are not so good and they have to keep tabs on all this stuff I mean that's a huge story to introduce even before you get to the plot elements with Vincent D'Onofrio and I think you know by attaching itself to Will Smith and in that in that character the film leads us through these complications in such a um, fluid and engaging way. Yeah, D'Onofrio, we should talk about him. That's, oh, that's, gosh, that's, yeah. that's pretty oh, fun. Man. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty, uh, as Rachel's article pointed out, that it's not a, it's a performance that probably made some, some people at the studio a little nervous because it, it is pretty daring, but it's so 
I think it's the right performance for that. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's a guy inhabited by an alien. Mm-hmm. He's hilarious. I mean, it's a very physical performance. A lot of that uh, character is in the makeup and the way it, it keeps deteriorating just scene to scene. But it's so gross by the end. It is it's really so disgusting. But the physicality. Like with the tooth dangling. <laughs> <laughs> but the physicality of him, uh, for instance, throwing a temper tantrum in the truck when he is trying to get the container that he stole from the alien open uh he just so convincingly comes across as something crammed into a human suit uh he has to deal with like actual human joints and you know body parts that face in certain directions and only move in certain ways but watching him flail around it's really easy to be convinced that like he doesn't have any of those limitations watching him lurch around uh, dragging linda fiorentino it's just like, how did you physically do that without harming yourself? And of course, just the the slurring performance of the 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 vocals and the the sheer joy of all the rage he brings into uh, insulting humanity. It's it's just great. I try to think of another funny D'Onofrio performance. Ooh, Nothing that's a really, really good question. At, you know, I'm sure there's I'm sure there are some other ones out there, but it's. It's. I think this is probably. It's safe to say it's comedy highlight. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, he's not even really going for that, really. I think. Mm-hmm. He, I think the physical aspect of this performance is what's so impressive. I mean, obviously, he does some interesting things verbally too. But you know, he really has thought through. Okay, this is an alien in a very discomforting human suit. <laughs> You know, and if you've ever worn clothes that really don't fit well at all, <laughs> that's what this is for him. And so he has to to struggle his way through it. The level of commitment to the bit is amazing from a actor's standpoint, and then also from just a, a sheer you know technical standpoint. I mean, this is this is one of those things where the film really fluidly mixes you know CGI effects with actual physical tactile effects, and and uh, all credit to Rick Baker uh, for that. I feel like that film is kind of where effects is now, where there is kind of a a hybrid of of physical, especially in like in things like the Star Wars, the new Star Wars films. There's there's a nice hybrid of of practical effects and and digital effects, and I I think for a while, not too long after this, it just went all digital, and 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 something got a little lost along along the way. And uh, this is a nice combination of the two. Before we get away from D'Onofrio's performance. Keith, I'm guessing you know this because you read Rachel's article as as well, but uh, do you guys know what two actors D'Onofrio was drawing on for for his voice? Let's don't. hear it. John Houston and George C. Scott. Huh. Uh, Huh. He says, "He says I was really interested in Houston's pronunciation of things. It was pedestrian in an elegant way. He sounds out every letter, but I didn't want to be that slow, so I combined George C. Scott's raspiness and cadence with John Houston's enunciation. So there's the formula for Edgar's voice. Please, Edgar. <laughs> Men in Black. When you think of what makes an alien, it's uh, John Houston plus George C. Scott. Well, I mean, if you smush them together hard enough, you're going to get something that isn't very human anymore. Oh, listen, monkey boy, compared to I'm on the top rung of the evolutionary ladder. So can it, all right? You're breaking my heart. Show me your face and I'll cure all your ills. You ever pull the wings off a fly? You can't see the fly bit even? How far do you think you're going to get with that your ship if that's what you call a piece of space trash we got locked up in the office? Put your weapons down. Never going to happen, insect. It's okay, Laurel. How is it okay? I'm saying it's going to be okay. Don't bet on it, meat sack. <laughs> So this opens, I don't think accidentally, with, with a scene of immigrants coming over and people trying to stop them. I don't think this movie is super political, but I don't think you can remove politics from it either. And if you know, if you recall, around the time this came out was another time when 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 we were in in the throes of a uh, a crisis over the border that was partially an actual issue, partially xenophobic hysteria. So, do you think this film is trying to say something about the politics of the moment or or of that moment or not? I mean, it's got to. It's like the dismissiveness that Tommy Lee Jones brings into speaking to the INS uh, people about protecting the country from aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it's just, he's so dismissive about the way that he uses that both that word and the idea of the INS having any any place in government, like any place in law enforcement 
at all. He's obviously dealing with bigger things. Apparently the world is uh, threatened with destruction on a really regular basis. But, you know, he is, in theory, uh, part of a, a law-abiding organization. And it's just so clear that he has nothing but contempt for those people and is, like, perfectly willing to send a bunch of immigrants, like, back on their journey into making a home in America mm-hmm. at, at the expense of a bunch of pretty identical-looking, like, tightly shaved white guys mm-hmm. who all seem to be about the same age. Like, I don't think it, there's any accident in the casting of that group. In a movie, if you notice, the the Mibs are pretty racially diverse comparatively. And once you actually get into the office, like, there's even, uh, like, gender diversity, not to mention species diversity. But the INS guys, like, they all look like they came from the same white supremacist meeting. I don't <laughs> think that's a coincidence at all. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think the film is you know, as a allegory, it's pretty strong. Because, I mean, that, that scene's right, you're talking about a scene that opens the movie, right? I mean, that yep. all that's how the movie begins with, with, with this with this scene that very directly, you know, evokes the flow of immigrants into this country. And then I think you also have this idealization of how immigration could function. You know, this, this super competent group of people who are allowing aliens to exist among us in peace you know and that being fine it being completely okay that there's aliens all uh, among us all the time we're not we don't recognize it and they're part of our society and everything is okay and you just have to take care of a few mischief makers and you know i mean goodness knows uh it would be nice if we had an actual immigration system (laughs) that functioned that well yeah, there is there's a definite kind of live and let live attitude towards the way that they enforce you know, when they, they catch somebody on the highway where they don't think he should be, like, once they understand why he's doing it, they're like, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, they have no interest in following the letter of the law at the expense of human or humanoid or semi-demi-humanoid uh, lives. There's just a live-and-let-live attitude. And, of course, the the baseline attitude of the movie is just, you know, these people needed some place to go, and this was the planet that they ended up on, and that's fine. You know, and for, for every Mikey... <laughs> gets evaporated into to blue paint uh or you know something like the bug there's obviously like literally thousands of people just like quietly living their lives in a in a productive way that's good for the country you keep saying that this that's the first fifth scene of the film though and i I think you're you're dismissing the lengthy sequence of the dragonfly flying through the air and getting squished (laughs) which is both a book with that danny elfman score yeah it's the the most tim burton-y thing in this movie totally the whole thing feels like a tim burton opening uh, which is just crazy to me because it's like it's not really the style of the rest of the movie at, at all, uh, and I I really kind of wonder what he was going for with it. Like it it does bookend the end of the movie very nicely, but it feels so inspired both by Tim Burton's like love of of sort of weird stop motion stuff, uh, and obviously his love of Dan- of uh, Danny Elfman music. Yeah, I mean I took it to just be like it's a bug, and bugs are gonna be the bad guy of this but it didn't like it's not a strong connection made at all but i think it's i actually like it as an entry into the film as different as it is from what comes next i think it's just i I like when movies start with a sort of place setting vibe setting a moment instead of just going directly into the action it also sets up a weird kind of tension because that bug dodges certain death so many times in that intro like every time you think okay this is where it ends it it doesn't uh right up until that final moment yeah so me it's just setting up sort of the resiliency of bugs as a soon-to-be antagonist in this story and you know the inevitability of them eventually getting squished yeah we haven't talked about linda fiorentino at all i think it's a lot of fun in this movie and was at that point was kind of a on in her own kind of hot streak as well, which between you know last seduction and this, what else did she be in then around the same time? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, I mean, what's really remarkable is like her career absolutely hit a wall. I mean, like yeah, it was damn. like, yeah, you know, I mean, she she I guess had a tough reputation around this movie, or a tough time working with with all of the other, other the director and the two stars, and uh, she was in Dogma, and then and then just that was practically it she just sort of yeah. dropped off the map and she was always one of the most interesting actresses to me I, you know she's great here she's just got she has nobody like her she's yeah, so, she fits right in and, and yeah. last seduction remains one of my favorite films of all time i may have to pull that one out again for next picture show because i love that film to distraction and she makes it 
Yeah, there's so many rumors going around about her like being trouble and difficult to work with, and, and now you, you don't know what that's code for. Sometimes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's the problem. Is like more and more you come to find out that that might mean she adamantly refused to sleep with a certain man in Hollywood, or that she kept like pushing back to be treated like her male co-stars, or like who knows what else. Or you know, it could mean that she's a toxic person that people didn't want to work with. You just you don't know, and you know probably never will. Yeah, it's it's too bad. I think she's I think she is she's good and I mean there's just again that voice that kind of like dry wit. There was never not an actress like her at the time and there really isn't now either. She's just so singular. I kind of I really miss her. It's just it, it was weird to revisit this movie and then think God, what happened to Linda Fiorentino? And then literally look at the uh, filmography, and this and this was just like the beginning beginning of the end. Yeah, this movie does not give her a ton to do. I mean, she does end up as a pretty typical damsel in distress uh, with the guys chasing after her, and the climax of the film literally hangs her into in a, in a tree <laughs> as a witness to what's going on. But she in a pretty short skirt, you know, in a very <laughs> short skirt. There's there's a lot of her legs in this movie, but the kind of early going where you see like this really weird side of her as as the queen of death as will smith puts it i there's just something like very soulful and very appealing and just deeply strange about her that i really enjoy in kind of her intro and her setup in this film and of course she's presented as like a very competent doctor who just keeps running up against technology and situations that uh, she knows nothing keeps about. Keeps getting her memory wiped. Like, <laughs> we'll maybe we'll probably talk about the whole neuralizer thing in the second half of this episode because it it plays a part in Men in Black International. But you know the the flashy thing, as you know, Will Smith calls it. Like she's been subjected to that thing a lot, and maybe that's why she's a little weird, guys. Like I feel like this movie does it. You know, it it thinks at acknowledging how messed up it is to keep wiping people's memories like that, but never truly engages with it. So I mean, it's a pretty harsh movie as far as caring about specific individual people it's kind of concerned Mm -hmm. with the survival of the human race but a lot of the humor is in how really apathetic it is about like the lives of of individual humans or aliens like just how or pugs or pugs just how (laughs) bluff and cynical it is yeah Uh, do you guys want to talk about the pug shaking scene you okay with it scott uh well i'm not sure if uh, our listeners know that i have a pug uh a 13 year old pug beautiful beautiful dog who i love very much where is she uh, she is two floors above us right now because mm-hmm. she she uh, barks at Tasha. Sorry, she Tasha. loathes me with a passion. Uh, uh, but and uh, it's mutual. One day we're gonna go. Mutual? We're gonna go fist to paw that made that fist dog. Fist to paw, me. you'd win that. She's uh, she's very she's old very and short. sleepy. Um, but well, so uh, am I. but so you know, I'm not I'm not I'm anti pugs getting shaken. But I can I can I can I can recognize the comedy of that just disconnected from the uh, you know when, I, when the film actually kind of cuts back or shows you from a distance like what just a passerby would see <laughs> of just Tommy Lee Jones just shaking this dog it's very fu- it's very funny I, I'll admit that I did notice that the film does not have the uh, humane association stamp of approval it's got uh, kind of a, a similarly boilerplate thing that says something about you know aliens and animals in this film were not harmed and were treated with the utmost respect and dignity or something like that yeah but it's it's the kind of thing you stick on your film when humane society just would not sign off on what you what you had to do. Well, I can tell you that dog is not alive right now. <laughs> should, should we blame Should we blame Tommy Lee Jones yeah, or just saying, the ravages not, I, I, of time? I don't, don't want to say anything about whether animals are harmed, but I'm just saying that dog is not with us right now. So you come to your own conclusions. I don't know what you're talking about, Scott. I've seen Men in Black International. That that pug was definitely in that movie. Same dog. You'll have to probably remi- you'll have to remind me what was in that movie. <laughs> All right, on that note, I think we're going to wind things down and we'll be back after the break to address your feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our last episodes on the 1954 film Godzilla and the recent Godzilla King of the Monsters inspired some reflection on what it means to destroy a city on screen. Genevieve, can you share one of those? Sure. David in Indianapolis writes, You guys micro-squabbled about whether there was or wasn't a better way for us to handle the demolishing of large cities in our popular media. And I think that the best answer is connected to the 2014 Godzilla film, which you seem to have liked more than I did. 
I was let down by what I felt was the picture's failure to pay off on a very specific promise from the trailer, that in this movie, bad things were really going to matter. Stakes would be felt, and loss, even shell shock. I submit to you that the best piece of film succeeding at this elusive task is the official trailer for Godzilla 2014. Not specifically the visually stunning Halo jump, but what follows. The set of instantly relatable reaction shots almost made me well up the first time I saw it. I imagine the possibility of a movie letting me not responsibly think about, but responsibly feel, what so many had 13 years prior on 9-11, and that a lost sense of the importance of things might be rekindled. Unfortunately, the film did not honor that promise, and while it took itself seriously, almost nothing, no one, and no event made any impact at all. But that trailer is a kind of masterwork, possibly the best use of reaction shots in a preview since the Close Encounters campaign in 1977. Can I just take a moment to shout out the term micro squabbled, mm-hmm. uh, which okay. I love, yeah. I liked it too. and which I, I feel does describe our dynamic? We should we should micro squabble. I like I like I like the micro squabble. It's like when you when you like fiercely disagree on something you mostly agree on. <laughs> I, I, I like just just strongly disagree on a very tiny point. I, I, I'm very pro micro squabble. It's even smaller than a mini squabble. <laughs> I think the main point David's trying to make here, though, is is, is well, the main question he's trying to ask is: Is there a place in uh, blockbusters to kind of sort through the feelings on nine eleven the way the original Godzilla was a chance to sort through some feelings about mm. the atomic bomb? And I, I would point to another Spielberg film, which is his remake of War of the Worlds, which I think is a, it's a fantastic distillation of, of 9-11 and its aftermath in a, in a blockbuster form. Um, I, I, you know, I, no one loves the ending. I don't love the ending either. But I think up to that, it's, it's a pretty incredible movie. Uh, just kind of the disorientation, the awe, some of the imagery of, of, of you know, missing posters that was thrown in there. Uh, I think it really does much of what the original Godzilla was doing. I also just really admire how that film deals with how people behave in a crisis. Uh, the scene that has always stuck with me is like when the earth first starts cracking, when the aliens are coming up from below and Tom Cruise is just sort of charging in a panicky way around from, from emerging crack in the ground to emerging crack in the ground with a crowd of people. Like they all know they're in danger, but they can't help but rush to the site of the danger to see how dangerous it is. It's like, just sort of human nature. And then time and time again, the earth moves again and they all freak out and panic and run. And then they stop to look at the next crack. And it's, it's really well done action. Uh, and it's really well done acting, but it also just feels so real in terms of, you know, if, if I was there, I would probably also not be able to take in what I was seeing and behave like a panicky idiot. It's like a micro explanation of why people do stupid things during disasters. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, to get back to Godzilla, I just think it takes you know a tremendous amount of courage and will to evoke something real like that. Um, and I, I guess the the 2014 Godzilla just didn't quite quite have it. I mean, what I admire about that movie is the clarity of of its action. It's 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 you know Spielbergian willingness to kind of allow um, some some time to pass and build up to a climax that's going to be really satisfying. There's something. Uh, the, the, so the, the the classical construction of it uh, was something that you know that I ad- admired. It sort of delivered for me as a a blockbuster. But I think to criticize it for not doing what the '54 version did and 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 tie Godzilla's uh, actions to something more meaningful is fair criticism i think i think it's worth also worth saying that both godzilla films have incredible <laughs> trailers trailers that even though i like the 2014 version better than the 2019 uh sequel they both have trailers that are better than the films they're advertising i think fundamentally if you're looking to blockbusters for any kind of meaningful catharsis you're you're going to be missing out because blockbusters fundamentally want to bring in the largest widest audience possible and that means they're always going to be aiming for some kind of uh big wish fulfillment ending some kind of like big exciting satisfying everybody gets what they want kind of ending and i think it's important to remember that the 54 godzilla wasn't setting out to be uh, like some kind of giant blockbuster and it was coming from a culture that's maybe a little less obsessed with uh self-congratulation uh than america i mean American blockbusters are ultimately movies about uh, dealing with big issues and then overcoming them in a big self-congratulatory way. And I think that's why uh, Avengers Infinity War hit people so hard was because they had to walk out of the theater without being petted and told, like, you're awesome and this is great and everything's going to be fine. Or that. 
<laughs> I'd like some more of that actually in my blockbuster. Oh yeah, but. well it was it was very very striking. I would love to see more blockbusters like that. It's really risky, uh, you know, mm. to to put your money down to put your two hundred and fifty million dollars or whatever down on something that leaves people feeling sad and unsatisfied. Yeah, Marvel had to do what nineteen hit films before <laughs> <laughs> in order to earn it. it. Um, I mean, before we get to email, so but Godzilla was the most expensive movie uh, in Japan at the time but i think there were different expectations then as well for instance not expecting it to make a billion dollars worldwide yeah exactly um well let's just catch up to our under the silver lake episode we keep getting feedback about our pairing of it with chinatown scott can you read one of those uh sure anthony writes every time i watch chinatown i can't shake the feeling that noah cross was supposed to be played by an, by an elderly humphrey bogart Obviously, that's nonsense because Bogart had been dead for almost two decades when the film was made. But there's just something about the character and the way Houston plays him that feels like it should be Bogart doing an even more out there version of one of his late career weirdo performances. Are there any movie characters that you would have liked to see be played by an actor who died before the movie was made? Hmm. This is maybe not what you have in mind with the question, but I always find myself thinking about the actors that didn't get to, you know, didn't live long enough to make the, give the, as many great performances as, as they could have. And, you know, I, I think what would River Phoenix have done, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, here's, here's a movie I think is pretty much perfect the way it is. Would not want to recast it. Love the lead performance, but thought exercise, um, first reformed starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. Think about that. The other thing that, that came to mind with this letter is there are certain types of roles I feel like modern that, that we don't really have actors that are equipped to play them anymore. I was thinking about this watching a not very good, but kind of entertainingly bad movie called Serenity recently. Um, uh, has anyone else seen that? Anyone else I heard it? it's insane. Yeah. See it. Don't, don't let me. I don't know the spoiler. I know there's some insane twist. And there I, is an I really... insane twist, which I stayed away from. It is an, an insane twist. But in this film, Anne Hathaway an actress I think is great and and I I look forward to her performance but she plays like a Veronica Lake style femme fatale and it's just really outside of her range and I'm trying to think I was trying to think who could play that role convincingly and I think we have a shortage of, of type of, of actors that can could fit that part so you know I don't know, reanimate Veronica Lake I don't think that's an option at this stage but uh, uh, I don't know Linda Fiorentino could have played it but yeah yeah. anyway how about, how about you Genevieve anyone uh, I mean I'm really bad at these sorts of exercises and I've like been thinking about it for the past couple hours and just kind of failing to come up with anything I feel like I'm really strong and get behind except something that was inspired by this letter and specifically our Under the Silver Lake pairing. Um, And I know that Keith and Scott, you are really, really liked Under the Silver Lake and Tasha and I were maybe a little more eh, on the fence about it. But I did like it. But one of the things that had me on the fence with it was Andrew Garfield's performance, which I think is very good in like purposefully dickish performance, (laughs) you know, like you're not supposed to like that character. But I kept thinking what that character would have been like if it had been played by Anton Yelchin, Mm. who is an actor who I always thought had kind of a similar vibe to Andrew Garfield, but just is able to inject a little more soulfulness even into kind of detestable characters. I'm thinking about his performance in Thoroughbreds, which we discussed, and that was released posthumously after, after he passed as well. But so that, that's kind of like the best example I could come up with just as sort of a, you know, a similar actor who might bring something a little different to the role that would change the the vibe of the movie a little in a way I possibly might have preferred. But I don't want to, like, impugn Andrew Garfield's performance in that. Like, I don't think it's a bad performance. It's just, it's a performance that kept me at a distance from that character in a way that I might not have been if it had been in the hands of an actor like Yelchin. Uh, I guess one thing I would say is that uh, I would have wanted to see Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones be in Men in Black International. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're both still still alive, though. Okay, so so that question isn't very good. Um, Yeah, if we're casting with still alive actors, I do like like the uh, examples that you've given, like, like Philip Seymour Hoffman or River Phoenix, because one of the problems is that acting styles change dramatically and so you can't really it's hard to imagine an actor like john garfield who i really love being in a movie now it doesn't those styles those that style of performance just doesn't 
doesn't work and vice versa it doesn't work the other way either so it's it's kind of that's a, it's a this is a tough hypothetical for me it's a tough one for me too because i pretty much don't engage in fantasy casting it's just not something that i enjoy it's not really the way my brain works that said i have always wondered what terry gilliam's man who killed don quixote would have looked like with john rochefort in the uh title role um as opposed to jonathan price who uh, I think does a really excellent job, um, but definitely brings a different kind of energy to it. And of course, you know, the two of them have worked together. Gilliam and uh, Price have worked together extensively before. But I do wonder what a significantly older man uh, who had just a very different energy would have would have brought to that. Um, that said, I was kind of talking to my husband about this because I was thinking, you know, is there is there something I'm missing that I complained about like long ago uh, and have just forgotten? He's kind of the the institutional memory of the household. Uh, and he had a really interesting take, which was that. Very rarely uh, when a movie doesn't work well, is it does it come down to the casting? Like very rarely could it have been fixed by the right person in that role. So you look mm-hmm. at uh, something like Suicide Squad and think, well, you know, maybe if Heath Ledger had been around to reprise his role as the Joker, that would have brought a different energy. to. No, that wouldn't have fixed that film's problems at yeah. all. So... I think maybe there are cases that are are sort of, you know, that's I've always wanted to see that, but I don't think there maybe are many cases where it would have fixed the movie per se, Uh, except for Watchmen when Silk Spectre should have been played by anybody but Malin Ackerman. She's she's good elsewhere, though. I mean, I mean, I I agree with you. She's not good in that film, but I I was I was like kind of written her off. But but I've I've seen her be quite entertaining in other in other projects. Yeah, it's kind of like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie like The Happening. And it's like I've seen all of these actors Mm. like do do decent acting jobs elsewhere. They must have been coached to behave specifically like this. Why would you do that? What about Betty Davis? Betty Davis would have actually translated pretty well, and not like put she Betty, should have played, put, played the Joker put, in Suicide put, put Betty Squad. Betty Davis in like Devil Wears Prada, right? The, <laughs> she, would, she, would have, she would have knocked that out of the park. That sounds delightful. Uh, similarly, uh, Bob said he really wanted to see Bella Lugosi play the uh, the ancient vampire in What We Do in the Shadows, uh, the one that the Nosferatu <laughs> one that lives down in the basement. He thinks that uh, Lugosi would have had a, like a, just a com- complete and utter hoot playing that role. No doubt. Well, this is a f- really fun exercise. I'd love to actually hear from some of our listeners about, um, you know, what their their own sort of like ideal casting for for actors who are no longer with us, because uh, maybe someday we'll have that power to raise. The- <laughs> I mean, um, no, well, technically we do now. Like, yeah, it, it, we've got I mean, the digital power to do it. Lawrence Olivier and 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 uh, Lawrence Olivier. The Sopranos. And that was great. That. that was seamless. Oh, good. <laughs> and you know, Peter Cushing and, and Star Wars. Rogue One, all, oh, all things, all the best moments in those films. Um, all right, well, well. Anyway, write to us anyway. And we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at seven seven three two three four nine seven three zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll talk about the new Men in Black International, which expands the Men in Black concept to a global scale. And I'm sure we'll find more to say about it than that. Uh, Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, oh no, I was going to reprise that alien language bit here. Oh, we really need a bigger budget for this show. All right, check it. Let me tell you this in closing. I know we might seem imposing, but trust me, we ever show in your section. Believe me, it's for your own protection. Because we see things that you need not see, and we be places that you need not be. So go with your life, forget the Roswell crap. Show love to the black suit, because that's the men in, that's the men in. Yeah.